0: You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of completing one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is brought to you by the Writers Program at UCLA Extension, helping you reach your writing goals one page at a time. Enroll now at uclaextension.edu.
1: Hi, I'm Monica Holloway, and I wrote Driving with Dead People.
0: Monica Holloway is the critically acclaimed author of the memoir Driving with Dead People, described by Newsweek as unforgettable. Glamour christened this work a classic, and the Washington Post deemed it irresistible. Holloway contributed to the anthology Mommy Wars, from which her essay Red Boots and Cole Hans was described by Newsday as brilliant and grimly hilarious. Holloway lives in Los Angeles with her Emmy Award-winning husband, television producer Michael Price, and their son, Wills. Driving with dead people explores nine-year-old Monica's fascination with the local funeral home. With a father who drives his Ford pickup with a Kodak movie camera sitting shotgun just in case he sees an accident, and whose home movies feature more footage of disasters than of his children, Monica is primed to become a morbid child. Yet in spite of her father's bouts of violence and abuse, her mother's selfishness and prim denial, and her siblings' personal battles and betrayals, Monica never succumbs to despair. Instead, she forges her own way, thriving at school and becoming fast friends with Julie Kilner, whose father is the town mortician. In time, Monica and Julie get a job driving the company hearse to pick up bodies at the airport, yet even Monica's growing independence can't protect her from her parents' irresponsibility and from the feeling that she simply does not deserve to be safe. Little does she know, as she finally strikes out on her own, that her parents' biggest betrayal has yet to be revealed.
1: This book was always inside me. I wondered my whole life why I was so obsessed with death. And I grew up with a a best friend whose dad owned a mortuary. And it sort of was the beginnings of my being separate from who my family was and my family life. And so when I decided to start writing, I actually did a one-woman show in New York Um, called spontaneous vertigo because I was an actress before that, and actually my MFA is in acting from UCSD. And people say, "Oh, you have an MFA in writing." I'm like, "It's in acting." I'm so sorry. (laughs) No, it's it served me well because then when I didn't get work when we first got to New York, my roommate and I, she's a director, she said, "Hey, let's write a one woman show." And I said, "Oh no, I'm." I'm a I'm a reader, but I'm not a writer. And interestingly enough, I wasn't a reader as a young person, but I became a real reader. So she followed me around with a tape recorder and then typed out the stories that I told and said, hey, here, sit on this chair and do it. And it became this one-woman show. I liked the writing better than the acting, which was really a bummer because I had spent so much money on my education (laughs) for theater. And I love the theater. I still go. I just went last night to see Hello, Dolly! with Betty Buckley. Um, But I don't want to be up there anymore. I want to be uh, writing. When I realized I wanted to write a full-length book, it was when I read Hope Edelman's Motherless Daughters. So that, for me, would have been back in, I mean, not when it came out I think in 86. But I was working at Unsolved Mysteries, that crazy television show. And they were so great to me. And I love, you know, I love ghosts and death. As I already said, I love death, which is sad, but um, I'm interested in it. And so I was perfect for Unsolved Mysteries. But they wanted me to find books, because they knew that I was a big reader. They wanted to do documentaries. And I thought, Oh my gosh, this this book by Hope Edelman would be amazing. So, I got in touch with her and I found out that she taught at UCLA Extension and this was 1998. And I thought, "Oh, I can meet Hope and I can see do I have any real talent in writing because the only thing I'd written was that one woman show." And literally, she gave, you know, some exercises to prompt us. I was shaking like a leaf. And whatever I read out loud, I would read like this because I was so nervous in in her class. And I wrote literally the first chapter of Driving with Dead People in that very first class. And I wouldn't say that that was the final version, of course, but it was the only book I ever had in me to begin with. It was always going to be the first book. I never pictured myself really getting published. I didn't have that kind of self-confidence. And that's what I tell my students now. Um, You know, don't worry about that. Just do the writing. You know, it took me writing a lot of the book to want to get it out in the world. I mean, I always wanted it out in the world, but I wasn't sure what version would it be, a one-woman show, or would I ever get an agent. Or, But I will say that those early pages – felt very gratifying to me, and also sort of came out of me in in an organic way. And I thought to myself, you know, I might be a writer. It was really exciting and nerve-wracking. One thing that I always say to anybody that asks me about writing, and, you know, I didn't publish until I was 42. That was the first time I published anything, which was in an anthology called The Mommy Wars. And uh, Leslie Morgensteiner from the Washington Post was doing it, and I was lucky enough to get in it. And that was the first uh, piece that I ever published. And the summer after that came out, I found out that Joanne Beard, who wrote Boys of My Youth... One of my favorite books ever was teaching at Sarah Lawrence for one week, and I thought to myself, you know, one thing that Barbara Abercrombie, who teaches at UCLA and who is an, an amazing teacher but great friend of mine now and is my mentor, she said, find the people who inspire you and the authors that you love and go to them. If, you, if they're doing something in New York and you can afford to fly there, go there. Or just go listen to them speak. And so Joanne Beard was doing the six-day workshop at Sarah Lawrence. And I went And I, again, was very nervous and there was an open mic and Joanne was saying to everybody, you know, you paid the money. Some of you flew out here from far away. You know, it was in uh, upstate New York, not upstate, but, you know, and I didn't want to get in on the open mic. (laughs) I was too frightened. And then I sat there one night and I thought to myself, you know what, why did I come here and spend all this time writing and meet Joanne and not have the courage to get up and and say what I want to say and read my work. So I got up in front of everybody as other students had done all through the week and uh, I remember Billy Collins was in the audience because he was teaching that week or maybe he was just a a speaker that week but I was like Billy Collins the poet laureate is here and uh I read my first chapter of Driving with Dead People And I was sort of amazed because there was this sort of hush over the auditorium, and I was very nervous thinking that I was just, you know, bombing. (laughs) And when I went back to my seat, uh, this woman sort of tapped me on the shoulder, and she said, you know, I'm an agent. I'm, you know, I'm an agent in New York, and I think you've got something to take out. And I said, well, I only have three chapters written. She said, ah, that's okay. I think that you should take it out. I think she said, Do you know how the whole book goes? And I said, Well, it's my life. So I do know how it goes. And she said, Well, listen, you should, you can either talk to me, or, you know, talk to Joanne, and figure out sort of, do you want to meet with me? Are there other people you want to meet with? And you should stay after the workshop and come into New York. So I was flipping out, you know, I was like, you know, instead of drinking, which I don't really do that much. I just went and got like a huge coffee <laughs> filled with sugar. And I was just like, what is happening? It felt like something was happening. And in, indeed it was because I called Hope Edelman and I said, Hope, I got this offer to come in and meet an agent. And Hope said, listen, meet my agent. And it was so generous of her. And she is a generous teacher and an amazing editor. I really admire her for every, all of her writing. So I met her agent. And I sent her the the two chapters. I didn't even send her the third one because I was like, boy, I don't know if that's ready. And she called and said, come in, come into the city. So I went in and we spoke about the book and I pitched the whole story to her saying to her, you know, I've never written a book before, a whole book. Actually, a one-woman <laughs> show is all I'd written. And she said, look, come back in November and we'll get, we're going to pitch this to a couple of places. And I said, okay. So I bought an outfit from anthropology, which is what I could afford. And I was like, it had all these buttons on it. And I wore my, my grandmother's bracelet. And I thought, you know what, I'll just do the best I could. And I so we were going to Simon & Schuster. And I was like, checking into Simon & Schuster was enough for me. It was like a little card that said, you know, Monica Holloway and 16th floor Simon & Schuster. And I'm like, if nothing else comes out of this, look at me. This is amazing. And when I went up, to the 16th floor, and the doors, the elevators opened. There were these three women standing there. And one was Jen Bergstrom, which is the head of publishing for Gallery Books, my now dear friend and editor, Trish Bachkowski, and her assistant, Kara. And I couldn't believe they met me at the elevator and they were like, oh, my gosh, we can't wait to hear your story. So I got really fired up and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to tell the story as I know it. And that's when being an actress really (laughs) comes in handy because it wasn't exactly at all like my one woman show. But in a way, I was performing and also engaging with these women. So I did the whole pitch and uh, with Hope, Hope Edelman's agent sitting there, and they said, "What's the title?" And I didn't have a title. I was like, "Oh, right." So I was getting ready to say "Dead Girl," which nobody would have wanted, and I looked at the at Elizabeth Kaplan, who's the agent, and she said, uh, "Driving with Dead People," and I thought, "Well, what a terrible name!" <laughs> and they loved it, and I love it now. And I love her for giving me that title because I never would have come to that title. And uh, they said, oh, listen, I think, you know, we'll take it. And um, we have to talk to the two Franks. And the two Franks were in the um, accounting department and they had to decide sort of how much money I would get. And I was like, look, I'll pay you to let me have a book at Simon & Schuster. And I remember we spilled out onto 6th Avenue and I was just... I felt like the world had shifted and everything was brighter and greener, and it was crazy. And I also thought, I have to write a really good book, and I don't know how to write a book at all. So I got home. Well, first of all, I called my husband. My husband's um, a writer on The Simpsons, and he was beside himself because I think, I really think that my husband wanted me to continue acting and then when i started doing the classes at ucla in writing he wanted me to do that but he wanted me to get going <laughs> and i think he was really relieved and proud of me and he was screaming over the phone how excited he was like not screaming but you know very excited and i said but michael i have to write a book for them and i don't even know how to write a book and he said you do because you tell stories you tell the story And if you need help, we'll get an editor. I didn't need an editor because my editor at Simon Schuster, Trish Bachkowski, was an amazing person to me. She was so kind. She just wanted my stories, which was really what I had to give. And I didn't really have structure down. I learned it through her and with her. And she was so patient. And I remember, so I started writing. And my son at the time, my son is... Amazing. He has high-functioning autism, and he was having trouble in school uh, in terms of just my not being there, and he had a shadow and everything. But I would go and sit outside his school where he could see me through the window, and that's where I wrote Driving with Dead People in my Jeep. <laughs> and it became such a comfortable thing because I'd go to Starbucks and I'd get a coffee. Well, I would get everything I needed until 3.30 except for a bathroom, and I would just write, and it was very... Um, easy for me because I wasn't in an office. It was very um, private. I didn't really have a cell phone yet. I just had a pager so nobody could really get a hold of me. And I found this world in my Jeep (laughs) of long ago. And it was so important to me that the reader go through exactly what I went through at the time and the timing that I went through it. So that the reader starts with me when I'm, you know, around eight. I guess I'm exactly eight. And then as my stories unfold, the reader finds out, as I did, the surprises that come along the way with growing up, in my case, in an abusive home and not really realizing that you grew up in an abusive home. And when you realize it, when you go to somebody else's house and you're like, boy, her dad was really... Weird. He was home all night and he wanted to play games with us. And I said to my mom, Her dad is strange. He never left. He was home the whole weekend I was there. And she said, You know, that's how it's supposed to be. And I remember looking out the window at the, we were in the Midwest and I remember thinking, you know, looking at the cornfield going by, thinking, You know, wow, I think I might be the weird one. And My editor just let that story come out as it was. But I will say, I use you know not knowing anything about how to write a book straight up. I'm sure everybody that's gotten there in my face wants to kick me in the butt, but I just Mm. (laughs) so I just have to say I have to believe that the acting held me because of all the plays I knew and the way I analyzed them. And I'm going to give myself that anyway. But um, and then all my classes, of course, here at UCLA, and also just. I think life informs us also. I would send my editor chapter one and then I'd start a whole new file for chapter two. And then I'd have chapter three and then four. And then one day she says to me, Monica, what might be really helpful is if you put chapters one through 21 in one file. (laughs) And I was like, well, of course, because it's a book. So I think in some ways this first book was, I couldn't think of it like a entire book. I had to do it like a chapter at a time. And she really allowed me to do that, which was really helpful to me. And then when it came to my having the, you know, 21 chapters, uh, I actually had 28 chapters to begin with. My husband helped me and had a wonderful idea. He's a theater director also, so he can see the big picture And he had me take index cards and put all my scenes on index cards. And now I know a lot of people do that, but I didn't know it at the time. And we sat at the dining room table with all of these cards and they were, you know, in sections. And we put the book together in a whole, it wasn't a whole new way, but some scenes were stronger up front and other scenes were stronger in retrospect. And then I also realized that I really wanted an epilogue too, so that I could end the book When I was 28, but also say, you know what? I'm down here now and it's okay. Lucky for me, I had a deadline. And I think that it's not true, probably, well, it's not true for everybody, but for me, having a deadline is the greatest gift. And I had one year. So they said, how long do you need to write the book? And I was like, ah. 3 months because <laughs> I'd never written a book. I'd just written a one-woman show and they were like, mm, "I think we'll give you a year." And let me tell you, a year is not a long time, but it was good for me to just have a year because I was completely consumed by it and I had all this time while while my son was in school. It was just like a magical year of reliving all of these stories and remembering too all these things in my life that were like not just, not poignant, I hate that word really, but just some of the really tiny scenes of myself with my grandmother, for instance, in her trailer. She had like a double wide trailer. (laughs) I always say double wide. And really, it wasn't. It was just a trailer. (laughs) But I somehow, uh, anyway, that's my exaggerating right there. But it was an aluminum trailer. And the two of us would play pickup sticks and tiddlywinks, if anybody remembers that. And those were sometimes the moments when I would be sad and not understand why. And it was because she was giving me so much love. I was having so much fun. And there was something really missing in my home. But I didn't realize till I started writing the book that that sort of worry and sadness and like somebody's going to come through the door and it's going to be, you know, all hell is going to break loose, followed me everywhere. And I don't think until I started writing the book, I really understood that. We started revising. We did it chapter by chapter, which I think was a really good idea that my editor had because I think she was keeping it pretty straightforward and simple for me so that I wouldn't be looking at the whole book all at once. So the early revisions were not the get out the index cards and figure out the structural shape, which is really important. But the original revisions, as I recall, and I really appreciate this editor for, and she's amazing for this. She would not rewrite lines for me. She would ask questions instead. So she would take the chapters, and there would be these really smart questions, and I would rethink completely what I was saying. And sometimes I would say, nope, that really is what I'm saying. I think that I'd like to leave that. And she would say, okay, well, then if, that's, if that makes sense to you, it'll make sense to the reader. Or she would ask me a question, I'd think, oh, you know what? that isn't coming across at all like I wanted it to. And in fact, that's not what I meant. And so the revision on this particular book was so, it just got deeper in my, I hope, and it feels like it did to me. With each revision, I felt like the story got stronger and more vivid. And I really owe that to my editor. No question about it. And the I mean, I think all writers probably have this, obviously. But when you're deep, deep writing into into something, uh, a project or a book, you think about it all the time. You dream about it. You think about it. You're in the shower. You're like, oh, my gosh, i got to write that down. And so one of the things about Revision that was interesting was that there were so many things that came to me while I was eating a taco or something. And I'd say, oh, my gosh, I forgot about this one story where I was walking across you know the field, and I saw my cousin, and whatever happened, it just it it happened because it was in one year for me. It, it really had to go quickly, and it did. And I was really lucky in many ways that it settled into what it did, because I have other books that I would I would probably rewrite. Not the whole book, but there are things that I would rewrite. But I have to say that in this being the first book, it's kind of unusual, I guess. But I think it's because it kind of fell out of me and was dying to get out into the world, either as a theater piece or as a book, that I really wouldn't change this book. The hardest thing in terms of the revisions of this book came at the very end. I had five days before the final draft was due, and I'd been talking to the lawyer for Simon & Schuster, Eric, and he said, he was asking me certain things about the book. And I was worried about, you know, the legal ramifications, and not just legal, because I wanted to protect my son and my husband. But also, you know, it's difficult to write about people who are living. It's just difficult. And I know Anne Lamott says the famous quote of, you know, if they wanted a better story, they should have treated you better. And, you know, there is that. (laughs) And, but you don't want to hurt people. But you do. And you kind of have to say to yourself, am I going to go forward and publish what I believe to be the absolute truth or am I not going to do that? And so when the lawyer came in with five days before the draft was due, so we're not in galleys yet, he said something that absolutely stunned me because I had asked all through the process about this, do I have to change the names in the book? And my editor said, I don't think so. I'll ask, but I don't think it's going to happen. And so she kept saying, and she really believed it or she wouldn't have said it, you know, "Um, I don't, I think we're good with the names and the places and all that and the timeline. And I said, great. And here with five days to go, all of a sudden, Eric, the lawyer was saying to me, you have to change every name, every city, everything. And for a writer, I said to Eric, you know, it's not like, so so there's this undertaker named Raleigh Cox, and that's his real name because he don't, he doesn't mind my saying that. And I said, how? I mean, he's like an undertaker with a square head and this great mustache, and his name is Raleigh, Raleigh Cox. I have to sit and think what kind of name would be better than what name he already has. I did call him Max, but it's not Raleigh, you know? But I did think, you know, the family sort of that I grew up with of morticians, Their last name was actually Monster, Monster and Sons, which I loved because when I was little, I'm like Monsters and Monsters and Sons. And I was like, how can I change their name? And they were saying, use our name. We don't care. you know. And I had talked to them and they weren't worried at all about it, but I still had to change their name. So I was thinking Monster. So I came up with Kilner. So like they're the Kilner mortuary. I didn't sleep for five days, which is fine, except that I could have done that in the process and probably, well, I say that in looking back, it wouldn't have helped me to do it in the process. I had to write them as they were, but it really threw everybody in my hometown, particularly who knew all all of us and knew the people in the book, who's who and which brother was that? I mean, meaning my uncles or, you know, and, and when you change somebody's name, you can't do just a search and replace because I had like four Toms. There's like, Jeff is everywhere. If you do a name that's like, Chris or something that's in Christmas that's in it <laughs> just the whole thing was blown and here I had so little time and I really hate that about this book I love my book I would never do that again and if I had been an experienced author who had been published before I would have really fought that it would have and maybe the book would have not come out when it came out Or it would have come out as fiction. I don't know how I would have done it. I I wouldn't have wanted it to come out as fiction. But it was really, really troubling. Of all the wonderful things that happened with this book, including how it was published and how lucky I was, the name changes devastate me. And even to this day when I read from it and I'm in front of an audience, I want to tell them the real names and the real places. And it kind of breaks my heart. So here's the bombshell that kills me about the name changing is that the last thing I was told, and, th- and this was somebody really high up in Simon & Schuster because I was fighting this like crazy, was that I needed to change the state, the state that it was in. And I couldn't believe it. And it makes sense to me that the people that know me and know that I grew up in Indiana, will see that the book is set in Ohio and be really confused by that. And I had to take a map out. And this is, again, those five days at the end and figure out sort of what's the distance between Indianapolis and Muncie, Indiana, which was what my real story was about, and Cincinnati and Columbus or wherever it would be. To, And I fought them tooth and nail on this. And I remember this woman, I'm not going to tell you what it was because she's pretty famous, but she said... Well, what's the difference between Ohio and Indiana? And I was so offended. And I said, I haven't even been to Ohio. I, there is a huge difference. Indiana is my home. And so I think without the name changes and, and the state, for heaven's sake, it's no wonder people are like, is this truth or fiction? And that was a really hard thing to deal with on my book tour because I couldn't quit talking about it. And I also didn't want to quit talking about it. I felt that I, I needed to tell my readers who had come out to see me. There were Barnes and Nobles everywhere then. And, you know, I had a nice big tour and I was in all these different cities that I didn't grow up in Ohio. I grew up in Indiana and it was not my call to move it to Ohio. So that has been a real issue. Now, I will say that when I reread the book, I feel comfortable that my stories are my stories, and that you know, I don't know about Ohio, but to me, it's all intact. But it was very difficult because I grew up in a tiny farming community, and the town that I grew up in was outside a a little, a bigger town. And uh, I'm very bad with numbers, but I want to say, in my little town. Maybe there were 53 people, and I might have that wrong, but there couldn't have been many more of us than that. There was a blinker light, and there was a post office with one postmaster, Dean Simpson, which is his real name, and uh, you had to go down and get your mail out of these little boxes that, you know, you twirled the dial on. <laughs> That's how small it was. And there was a tavern, and uh, I had an uncle that got thrown through the window of that tavern, you know, every couple months for, I, God knows what he was doing with the pool cue, but... So this is where I came from, and and we ran through cornfields. And then the main town was six or seven miles away, to, straight to the west of us, and that's where I went to school. So I traveled on the bus you know, to go to school there. Again, this town, Rushville, I'm going to say it, is a small town as well, and I don't know how many people are there now, and I don't want to say the number, but it, it's very small and very sweet. And I will say that that community came together and just saved me. They just loved all their kids there and they were so I I loved growing up there. I had a very difficult home life, but I had a wonderful time at school and I had a wonderful time when I visited friends and I also got involved. There was a barn there in a little town called Homer which was less than 53 people. <laughs> Poor Homer. I think I don't know. Is there 30 are there thirty people there? And there's a barn there, and they do theater there, or they did. The barn's not there anymore. But, and I started doing theater when I was in fifth grade there, and singing and dancing, and and I realized, you know, here I am in the middle of Indiana, in the middle of cornfields. That, um, oh my gosh, there's music and there's Broadway and there's there's just a whole life in plays. And even though I was sort of isolated in this place, I was given this enormous gift. And I felt like I wanted to give that back when I was writing the book. And even though it's, it's really, I'm, you know, I, I tell the truth about my family, and I feel like I did definitely told my truth, three chapters. I also tried to tell the truth about the community. One of the things I was really naive about was I thought, I'm going to write this book. And my mother and my father And my two siblings that I don't speak to, I have a sister that I was very close to that the book is centered around, my oldest sister, but they're going to read this book and they're going to understand who I am for the first time. And they're going to say, that's right. I was there too. That happened. But when the book came out, that's not what happened. And now I understand why they really have their own truth and it doesn't matter That I have mine. I mean, it matters to me. But I wasn't going to write this book and they were going to come out and celebrate it. That just wasn't going to happen. But that was, weirdly, what I hoped. Like somehow we would all end up back together somehow in this, not an apology, but because the book's not an apology, but I mean that they would offer up an apology or that they would say, yes, we were standing there. We did those things. Those things happened. And I was crushed when that did not happen. So what did happen was that um, my father, I mean, at the end of the book, you find out that he has abused all of, well, I will speak for myself and my oldest sister because we've both spoken out about it. Um, and he was very abusive to my brother as well, humiliating and, and very physically abusive. I never heard anything from him. He backed up. And apparently, and I was waiting for him to come after me. And there was a part of me that was like, please do please, because there are lots of witnesses to what happened in my life. And, you know, the other thing, too, is that I think people assumed when I wrote the book that Simon Schuster wouldn't check and wouldn't go back and say, you know, did this happen? And uh, so one thing I did that I really, now, now you can do it just sitting at home, but I had to go back to Indiana and go to the library in this tiny town and go into the basement and look at microfiche. And, figure out, like, did I have these stories right? The stories of like a parade, or the stories of the year, it opens with this little girl dying. And I wondered if I had the right year. And in my, all my writing, and the book was almost finished again, I thought I was five or six when this happened. And when I got to Rushville, I was eight. So I had to call my editor and say, I'm moving the book up three years because I was eight. And it's funny because we both panicked, she and I, <laughs> oh no. But it made so much more sense that I was eight and not five. I don't know why I got stuck in that in my head that she, it was five when this little girl was killed on her bicycle. And when I moved it to eight, the book clicked in. There was part of me that thought, you know what, it's time for me and my father to face each other. And if it's in court, that's fine too. I did not care. I was, I always fought him until I walked away from him. And I felt that he would come after me if he really did not understand what he had done to us. And the fact that he did not do that, and from what I understand in my, so basically what happened in my hometown, a friend of mine told me, was a bomb went off when this book came out. And I guess I should have known that it would do that. And it sounds ridiculous for me to say I didn't know that because I'd been gone for so long. And now I have to say I am back together with all my old friends from high school and people that don't believe me just aren't in my life, and that's fine too. And it's okay if people don't believe me. But the thing that was really difficult for me was my sister, my middle sister and my mother came after me and that was really surprising saying that it wasn't that I'm not a reliable narrator and that it's not true at all and that was shocking because they don't blame anybody now and I don't have any rage or anything like that anymore and it feels so good you know i'll tell you i came out of the ralphs which is in encino and at the other end of the parking lot was a barnes and noble at the time and what i saw in the window all the way across and this was 2 weeks before my pub date were two legs with knee socks all across the front of Barnes & Noble. And I thought, that's so weird. It looks like my book cover in a way. And I'm like, that's my book cover. And I was so shocked. I'm like, two weeks early, and I ran down to Barnes & Noble, and they had like a stanchion with all my books there. And I thought, oh, no, this isn't going to be small. This is not going to be small, and everyone's going to hear about it, and I better get ready. And the book did well. And I'm really pleased. But my mother and my sister worked really hard to keep... Like They wrote to the Diane Reem show. And I heard the letter. The letter was read to me by my publisher. And both of them wrote to say that it didn't happen. That basically my whole story (laughs) didn't happen, even though my sister, who's in the book, was right there with me and was going to be with me on the radio show. And my first response was, invite them on the show. Let's have every... What could be better then these women in one house and me saying one thing and them really having, I really believe they have a different truth than I do and for different reasons. And we deny things for different reasons, but I feel really comfortable with my truth. So at that same Barnes and Noble in Encino, I had my second reading. So afterward, there was a a really long line of people waiting to have my book signed because I know everybody in Encino. (laughs) I don't really know everybody in Sino, you know, but that's where my that's where my gang is. So I had a lot of friends there and they were out, you know, supporting me and it was wonderful. And my sister walked up to me cuz she was always beside me when I was signing. And some people wanted her to sign their books too because she's such a big part of the book. And she handed me this note and she said there's a woman who can't walk very well in the back and she just wants to say hello can you come back and these wonderful women at Barnes & Noble that were helping me get through the line and opening the books for me and giving me people's names so I could write it down said please don't leave the line but i looked back and she was beautiful and very elderly and i said i just have to run back there for one second and i went back and this sounds like i made this up because it's so beautiful and perfect for where i was and how sad i was that my family was never going to come back together, and I knew it by then. And I went back to this woman, and she said, I am 94 years old, and I was abused as a child. And she said, I never told anybody, but I was sexually abused by my father. And she said, I just want to tell you that if you hadn't written this, I would never have told a soul, not a soul. And I have told so many people that this happened to me. And she said, I feel like that now at where I am at the end of my life, that I'm an authentic person. And I held her hand, and I sat there, and I said, I don't know if I did the right thing. And I was my hands were all cold and clammy, and she said, you did the right thing. And I said, everybody's furious. And she said, they ought to be. They ought to be furious with themselves, and if they're mad at you, so be it. And that gave me a lot of courage.
0: And now, Monica Holloway reads from Driving with Dead People.
1: It changed everything. A school picture printed on the front page of the Elk Grove Courier, the newspaper my father was reading. I was eight. Sitting across the breakfast table from Dad, I pointed. Who is she? She's dead. He kept reading. What happened? I asked. No answer. I leaned forward to get a closer look. She looked like me. Same short, cropped hair with razor-straight bangs, same heart-shaped face, same wool plaid jumper. I looked at Dad, bloated, smudged glasses slid halfway down his nose. Why wasn't he telling me what happened? He loved talking gore, lived for it, documented it even. Dad drove his Ford pickup with his Kodak movie camera sitting shotgun just in case he saw an accident. If he was lucky enough to come up on something, he'd jump out and aim his camera at whatever was crumpled, bleeding, or burning. And every Thanksgiving, he lined up mom and the four of us kids on the golden-brown plaid studio couch, hauled out the bell and howl reel-to-reel, and rolled his masterpieces. Images jiggled past. Scenes from our tiny Ohio town of Galesburg. Christmas morning, four beautiful children in color-coordinated Santa pajamas squinting. Summertime. My older brother Jamie's first home run. A station wagon hideously wrapped around a telephone pole, blood dripping down the passenger door and plop, plop, plopping onto the road. My two older sisters and me in hats with wide ribbons hunting for Easter baskets, a dead cow smashed on the front of a Plymouth. Our childhood was preserved among the big fire at the Catholic Church, a Greyhound bus accident on Fort Henry Road, and a tornado twirling up Martha Whitmore's bean field and we all sat watching the movies and eating buttered popcorn made in the black and white speckled pan that was always greasy no matter how many times you scrubbed it. The disasters took up more reels than we did, and Dad narrated them like a pro. So why was Dad skimping on the details about this dead girl? Maybe it wasn't bloody enough for him. Well, I couldn't get that school picture out of my head. I needed to know what happened to that girl. If she was dead, something had killed her and I wanted a heads-up just in case whatever it was might be lurking nearby. So that night I casually swiped the newspaper off the cluttered coffee table and headed down the hallway to find my brother Jamie. Nothing scared him. He was sitting on his bedroom floor putting together a plastic model of a 69 Shelby Cobra Mustang. Can you read this out loud? I held up the paper. Why can't you read it? He asked, looking up from his project. He had most of the chassis put together. I can read it, but I want you to. He stared at me. I held up a Milky Way left over from my Easter stash. I couldn't tell Jamie I didn't want to read the details of that girl's death by myself, especially with her staring out at me from the front page. I didn't want him thinking I was chicken. It has to be right now, he asked. Mom says I have to go to bed in a minute, I said. He twisted the lid back onto the blue and white tube of Testor's glue, and wiped his hands on the filthy dishrag he kept in his supply shoe box. "'Let's go,' he said. I followed him to the dark landing of our musty basement, where the four of us kids congregated for secret business. "'Here,' I said, handing him the paper and the candy. I was glad Jamie wasn't too curious. He hardly ever asked questions about anything. We sat, crouched on the landing. I held the silver flashlight with the words Black and Decker printed down the side. Dad owned a hardware store in downtown Elk Grove and earned the flashlight selling ten hammers in two months, but he tossed it to me when the lens cracked. Jamie and I sat facing each other cross-legged with our foreheads touching, staring down at the white circle of light. He began to read. Driver faces charges and bike rider death. Bike rider? She was killed on her bike? I craned my neck to see the paper right side up. Do you want me to read this or not? Jamie tore open the candy bar wrapper. Go ahead, I said, thinking of my own bike. A gold schwinn with a leopard skin banana seat. I'd spent hours running it up and down the wooden ramp Jamie had built beside the alley behind our house. Cars ripped through there without ever slowing down. Jamie took a bite and began reading again. Mason County's fourth traffic fatality of the year occurred Tuesday afternoon with the death of Sarah Rebecca Keeler, eight year old daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Herbert Keeler. Eight years old? I was eight. I grabbed the paper to take another look. She was my age, but I didn't recognize her from school. I felt a pang of disappointment as I handed back the paper. Jamie continued, Sarah Keeler was a member of the Catholic Church and was a third-grade pupil at St. Mary's School. That's why I didn't know her. She was Catholic. Catholics were considered the equivalent of snake handlers in our small Ohio town. I didn't know much about them except they made Methodists like my parents nervous. This made Sarah even more mysterious. Anyone who unnerved my parents was interesting to me. Sarah was en route on North Highway 26 when struck by a car driven by Noel Lindsay, 61. The report states death was apparently instantaneous due to a basal skull fracture and a broken neck. What's a basal skull fracture? I asked. I don't know. I guess her head broke open, Jamie said. He knew death. He'd buried dozens of small animals he'd found dead in the field behind our house, or cats and squirrels squashed by the cars speeding through town on Highway 44. Hold the flashlight still, Jamie said. I shook my head and steadied the light. Jamie went on. That night, I lay in my small wooden bed and relished the attention Sarah Keeler must have received. I fantasized that it had been me on that bike, and I'd been struck from behind. I hoisted my arms above my head on the pillow and pretended to be lying on the road. In my fantasy, my dad drove by and stopped, not because he recognized my bike. My dad had no idea what color my bike was. He stopped because it was potentially gory. He jumped out of the truck with his movie camera, but realized it was me lying there, bleeding and dying. Double jackpot, he thought. One less mouth to feed, and he'd get all the attention. People would feel so bad for him. Dad resisted the urge to film the scene, opting instead to bend over my limp body, pretending to be struck with grief. He was surprised when he could actually squeeze out tears. Everyone closed in around him, and that's when I canceled that fantasy. If Dad shoved me out of the limelight, even in my death scene, if he couldn't love me while I was lying on the asphalt, there was no hope. Maybe others would have been sad to see me dead in the street. I thought of Mom curled up in the nubby orange chair reading Rich Man, Poor Man. Surely she'd have been devastated. But Mom was a human cork. She floated to the top of any awful situation. My mom who told me the earth was flat, always created her own reality. She would have been fine. I was beginning to wonder if dying was such a good idea.
0: The Write Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen, and recorded at the UCLA Extension Studios. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. Audio support was provided by Andrei Nikolaev. The Writers Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.